get the wrong idea about me, colleague. We just met. I don't have any ideas yet. Let me see what I can stir up for you. I don't want him talking you into this mess. Family's ready to pay up. They just want the boy back. Wake up, Collie. Faye doesn't trust me, and I don't trust her. We both don't trust you. After dark, my sweet. Betrayed beyond the limits of desire. That's the tagline for the film we're going to be talking about today, which is James Fowler's neo noir picture. After Dark, My Sweet. I was in two minds about how to open this, really, because I was thinking about that, that wonderful line from the film that stuck in my head since I first saw it back in the 90s at some point, and um, where Jason Patrick says to Rachel Ward and Bruce Dern, you pick yourself a guy that's a little bit off and, and throw him a curve, which I think is a wonderful line. I think that's... Uh, I think I've said that to the wife on many occasions. <laughs> I think it's it's quite a usable line that one. But yeah, so uh, after dark, my sweet is, is is the film that we're looking at today, which is an adaptation of the um, Jim Thompson novel from 1955. Um, so uh, I think we should have a round of introductions. Um, Aidy, would you like to go first? Yeah, um, I'm Adrian Mills, happy to be contributing to this uh, podcast. I teach uh, and program lead the BA Game Design courses uh, at the University Centre at Grimsby. Um, and uh, I've been watching films, I don't know, since before I can remember. Since my brother <laughs> took me to the cinema to see Jaws and scarred yeah. me for life. I took my daughter to see Jaws on the V release in 2012. Yeah. She was five years old. And, I was fine uh, as well. She loved it. And I bumped into a friend of mine at the, at the, that I've not seen for about 20 years. And she said to me, she said, only you would take a five-year-old girl to see Jaws. She said, I thought it was quite a reasonable thing to do. Yeah. 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 You, I, and, I, you and my brother. I went, <laughs> did, I went to, did you, sorry. Did you tell um, your mother, though, that you were taking your younger <laughs> brother um, to see Winnie the Pooh? Which is what my well, brother that, did. No, <laughs> I can honestly say I didn't tell me, ma'am, anything. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Peter, would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, yes, uh, Peter True, writer, lecturer. Um, raconteur. <laughs> written raconteur, yes, yeah. yeah don't, st- don't steal that from me. That was going to be my uh, announcement. I think I'm going to change mine. Um, I, no, I, I'm Paul Lewis, ne'er do well. I think that's that's mine. That's going to be mine. <laughs> um, so <clears throat> um, we're looking at After Dark, My Sweet today. Um, would anybody like to offer a synopsis? I've got one that I've written out. But uh, uh, is anybody like? Would, would any of you like to contribute a summary of the plot? Okay. Oh, um, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I'll just sort of preface this. First time I've seen the film. Um, at first time I actually heard of the film, if I'm honest. So I came at this completely fresh. So this is a you know a story of a uh, what seems like a, a homeless homeless man who is roped into a kidnapping by two people uh, in a in small town uh, America, um, and bad things ensue as they normally do. But it, it wouldn't. It wouldn't be a neo noir without bad things in shoe. No, absolutely, sort of thing. But as a as a synopsis, I, th- I think that pretty much covers it. I don't know. Oh, I like anymore. It. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, my synopsis. Kevin Kevin Collins, 
is also referred to as Kid or Collie. Um, yeah. He's played J- Jason Patrick. Is a, a punchy former prize fighter whose boxing career ended when he killed an opponent in the ring in an explosion of violence. Um, he bashed his brains out. What a, what a, what a wonderful thing to do. Um, and that's about a moment that's expressed through flashbacks. But after, since that, he's become a drifter. Um, he's escaped from a mental hospital and wanders into a bar in the California desert where he meets Faye Anderson, played by Rachel Ward, a widow. Faye introduces Collie, as she calls him, to Uncle Bud, played by Bruce Dern who claims to be a former police detective. That's kind of one of the plot points we might come back to a bit later, I think. Um, And he involves the former prize fighter in a plot to kidnap and hold ransom the child of a wealthy family. I think that's that's my synopsis. I like yours, AD, as well. But, uh, yeah, it's it's a classic sort of noir plot, isn't it, I think? You know, somebody with a a troubled past that's exploited and uh, embroiled in a plot by some mm-hmm. yeah. do wells <laughs> much like myself yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so i should i should clarify that i i, I am not actually a criminal <laughs> i think that's kind of, if anybody's sort of on the fence <laughs> i'm, I'm mm-hmm. not actually a well of the criminal persuasion <laughs> that's that's exactly what a criminal would say it is yeah <laughs> Doth protest too much. Oh yeah, I've, I've, yeah, I'm, I'm a bit concerned about that now. People thinking that I'm, you know, a bit like Uncle Bud <laughs> coming up with these plots. Um, so, should we move on to talking about first encounters with the film? Ada, you said this is your first time, didn't you? It is. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I mean, I like neo noir films. Um, I'll sort of watch them. I think they they have a certain moon and and you know certain downbeat appeal, uh, which does. Uh, which I find uh, quite enjoyable, uh, but this is one um, which had completely slipped me slipped me by. Um, I'm not sure sure why, but um, looking on um, IMDb sort of thing, just sort of having to check around about it, sort of thing. It, it, it does seem to be comments from you know a lot of people saying this is one of the best films you'll probably never have seen, um, and it seems to have sort of just missed me by. So this was um, when you when you suggested it, I was. I, I had no, you know, preconceived ideas. I didn't, I didn't know anything about it. Um, when I saw it was sort of Jason Patrick, Bruce Dern, uh, Rachel Ward, I was like, seriously, how have I missed this? Um, <laughs> this is a strange one, sort of thing. But yeah, it, it, um, it was, you know, I, I found it. I don't know. Uh, so yeah, that, that's this is my first encounter with this. Um, so yeah, um, I, I think we'll be, I don't want to go into too much more than that sort of thing until we actually discuss the more pertinent details of the plot and film itself. So. That's fine. It's great. It, I, mean, I think as you, you, you're right in saying it's sort of. It, I remember this being released, to be honest with you, and well, I'll come on to my first encounters a bit after Peter's, but I do remember this being released. I, I, I seem to remember seeing the poster up at the cinema. I think I was probably too young to, to see it at the time. I think it's an 18. Um, uh, but I do remember the ads playing on the television. I remember the TV premiere. I think it was a TV premiere. Um, but it is one of those films that sort of it was it was pre- not prevalent, but it was it was um, accessible. It was visible in the nineties, in the early nineties. You know, in that period when neo noir was a a popular thing, and and Channel Four mm-hmm. would have sort of regular screen or semi regular screenings and neo neo noir films, particularly and things like Red Rock West and uh, sorry, I went old Jonathan Waston Red Rock West. <laughs> And um, which I rewatched last night actually, um, uh, Red Rock West, and that that that's a superb film. Um, and um, despite my aversion to Nicolas Cage, sort of balances mm. out with Dennis Hopper. Dennis Hopper and JT watch, doesn't it? Actually, Cage is very good in that film, to be fair. <clears throat> but uh, 
It it dropped off the after Dark Knight Sweets sort of dropped off the radar, I think, in the late nineties in the DVD age. Because I don't think it's had a DVD release in the UK. Um I think uh it's definitely it's got a DVD release in America, uh, which is the DVD that I've got, but I don't think it's been released over here. Um and it's it's kind of one of those films that's just not been distributed really on home video formats in about Twenty years, um, at least in the UK, and and I, I don't remember seeing it on TV, you know, uh, uh, you know, since the nineties either. So it's quite <clears throat> easy to sort of, if if you missed it in those first sort of five or six years after it came out, quite easy to imagine that even if you're a fan of neo noir, you might not have encountered it. I think, mm. um, but uh, but yeah, P- Peter, was was this your first time with the film? Yes, yes. Um... Again, it's like the same entering it completely fresh perspective, which uh, another way of saying I was completely ignorant um, of it. So I didn't know at all what to expect, um, which I think is interesting, because um, without going into too much detail of of it, though, uh, so when you when you see a film with a with a voiceover, I think it's it's one it's that pivotal moment of uh, whether you're going to buy into. The film or not, whether whether the the voiceover works. So um, for me, entering it completely sort of fresh um, and not necessarily knowing it was that noir sort of um, thing from the start um, was interesting. How quickly that noir element became sort of clear um, without expecting it. You know. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. I, I think what you say about the voiceover as well is quite accurate you have to sort of buy into the character don't you i think that uh with that set that voiceover narration and um mm-hmm. and and collie is such a we'll come on to this a bit later but collie is such a nebulous uh ambiguous character isn't he um as are the others of course that that uh, you can see that potentially being a challenge to um viewers it's certainly not a hollywood film i mean it you know mm. it's it, it's not a mainstream sort of Hollywood picture, and well, we'll come on to that when we talk about the production. But um, I mean, Foley, um, you know, uh, uh, said in interviews at the time that there's no way that you could have got a film like this made with a a big Hollywood studio's involvement. And luckily, everything sort of matrixed at the right time um, in terms of those sort of mid-tier indie, semi-indie productions that enable films like this to be made. And it's hard to imagine them being made, I think, under the current climate, I mean, regardless of the pandemic, of course, but, uh, you know, even, even prior to that, I think it's hard to imagine films like this being, and many of the other Neo Noir films being, um, with such unsympathetic sort of challenging protagonists being mm. made, um, uh, because I don't think the infrastructure's there, perhaps, um, in, in the American film industry for it. Um, I mean, in terms of my first encounters, <coughs> excuse me, as I said earlier, I vaguely remember this being released at the cinema, um, and I, I sort of vaguely remember the UK release of it. And uh, I didn't see it; I was too young. I'd, I'd have been underage, um, but I do remember watching it. And I think it must have been the television premiere. And I think it was part, as I, as I recall, it was part of a season of neo noir films that um, that Channel Four put together in the early nineties. Um, I wouldn't like to put a year on it, probably 92, 93, something like that. And they showed, uh, as part of that season, there were, I'm pretty sure there was one false move. 
Mm. Um, Cal Franklin's one false move. Um, I'm pretty sure there was the hot spot as well. Dennis Hopper's the hot spot based on the Charles Williams book. Uh, Charles Williams book um, as well with um, Don Johnson and uh, Jennifer Connolly and Virginia Madsen. Um, and, but I, what I distinctly remember about that season was the trailer for it. This is the Noir series, <clears throat> and in that trailer there was a a couple of clips from After Dark, My Sweet that intrigued me, that, that sort of drew me into watching, um, I watched all the films in the season, but uh, drew me in particularly to watching After Dark, My Sweet. And there's that that line that um, Patrick delivers, you know, all you've got to do is pick yourself a guy that's a little bit off and throw him a curve. And the uh, reverse zoom dolly, the vertigo shot as well. And they were in the trailer for part of this neo-noir season. I thought, well, that looks interesting. So <laughs> I was eagerly awaiting to see what they were from. And of course, they were from After Dark, My Sweet. Um, and yeah, that was the first time that I watched it. And then um, revisited it a few times over the years, uh, VHS in the 90s. And then, um, like I say, the, the, the American DVD uh, in sort of the early early 2000s, I would say, that came out. Um, this was the first time I'd watched it for about 10 years. Um, I used to show it... Um, as part of a, uh, there's a couple of years where I had a bit more freedom in, in the sort of the curriculum and teaching, and uh, I used to do a little bit on Neo Noir, and this was sort of a Christmas treat. Would I, I would show this, <laughs> or um, I think it was One False Move. Very Christmassy films, you might mm. say. Yeah. Tis, the, tis the season for goodwill and yes. all that. And, um, in the mood. Yes, it gets you in the mood for Christmas, doesn't it, and the Noir. And um, but yeah, I, I, I distinctly remember showing this to some students, uh, particularly one particular group, and they, they were sort of blown away by it. You know, um, and uh, it was nice. It was nice to have introduced them to it, and it's nice to introduce you chaps to it as well. I think. <laughs> well, can I, I, hope can, so. Sorry, can I ask, um, you're saying it obviously based on a 1955 novel. I, I, again, completely unaware of this sort of thing. You know, uh, that's not something that I'm n- normally going to read. But does the uh, plot of the film follow the book quite closely? Because um, I, 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 I don't know. Is, that, is it something that it does? You know, does it? It is actually. Um, and, uh, uh, it's, you said you wouldn't you wouldn't read it, Aidy, but it's an excellent book. I've just that that noise that banging about was me just getting it off the bookshelf behind me. <laughs> I have a Jim Thompson shelf. And, okay. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm a big fan of Jim Thompson to be honest with you. Uh, pulp writer, but very astute, uh, you know, in, in his psychological understanding of, of people and, and the behaviours. Um, it's a superb book. It's a quick read, but um, I've not read it for quite a few years now. Um, I've read it two or three times, but the last time was about 2008, I'd say. Um, but yeah, the the, the 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 narrative, the plot is is <clears throat> um, pretty much identical, to be honest with you. Okay. And it's it's narrated in the first person. And there's, there's, there are a few moments, I think, in the narration that are taken word for word from the the novel as well. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and there's some of the dialogue as well. Um, that line that I keep quoting that Patrick says, you know, about uh, picking yourself a guard's a little bit off. I think that I'm pretty sure that's in the book too. Um, yeah, so, so some of the dialogues actually, you know, did mm. especially the, the opening, uh, the opening voiceover, and some of the voiceovers felt very um, like they've come straight. We'll just take that and put that <clears> into <throat> the film from the book. Yeah, it did feel like that. So, um, yeah. no, that was a bad yeah. thing because you know. It's well written, so it fit it fitted well, sort of thing. I was just asking, sort of thing, because to, um, just as a sort of initial reaction to it, you know, not knowing anything about it, sort of thing. It seemed to me, and, and these two films may not seem like you're gonna you're gonna put them together, sort of thing, but it was like some kind of, it felt tonally 
because I think of the location and the way it was shot, sort of thing like uh, something like Paris, Texas. Um, oh yeah, I'll come on and, to that. And, actually, yeah. and then also, but then crossed with the, the more serious aspects of raising Arizona. Yes, yeah, yeah, because yeah. Raising Arizona is to do with the kidnap of a child. Um, you know, and so, and, if, and, I remember, and, if I remember rightly, and you know, obviously take like you know the, the Cohen brothers sort of maniacalness out of it. Um, but it seems to be that those two films sort of in, in, in you know wrapped around this. I, I was surprised it was a, a, the book was earlier. So just yeah. Well, well, uh, I'll come on to the, te- the Paris Texas thing. I think a bit later. Uh, that opening scene is very much um, yeah, the colleague in yeah. the desert, and there's Maurice Jarre's music, very yeah. sort of evocative, um, and their sense of heat as well, and the widescreen photography. It, it is very reminiscent of Vendors uh, Paris Texas, mm-hmm. uh, and Travis wandering out of the desert. Um, Harry Dean Stanton very memorably to Mike Cooder's score. Um, it seems deliberately to pay homage to that, and and the Cohen comparison is quite interesting as well because, I mean, raising our own plot wise, but certainly I think tonally there's there's quite a lot in common with uh, more with Blood Simple, the Cohen's Blood Simple. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Because you know, raising Arizona so, is one of the more not farcical, but um, one of the more you know, despite its subject matter, it's more light-hearted Cohen. Uh, yes, outrageous. I think I yeah. think fast would be an appropriate word for it, to be honest with you. Um, but the Coens kind of, <clears throat> I won't say the pioneered neo-noir, because, of course, there were things like body heat that had come before. But but certainly I think the Coens, uh, um, with Blood Simple and, and Miller's Crossing and, and Barton Fink, which came in after this, but I think they helped to set a tone for many of those sort of uh, late 80s, early 90s neo-noirs and paved the way, you know, possibly to make um, financing these kind of pictures easier for a filmmaker mm. like Foley, perhaps, you know, and he'd make them an easier sell by proving there's a market for um, film noir uh, pastiche or film noir homage or, or neo-noir, as we call it, or film soleil, as some people have called it. You know, these are, by film soleil, um, I'm referring to these neo-noir pictures that take place in sunlight, a bit like Paris, Texas is sort of a film soleil. It's, it's very noirish in its themes, but it takes place under the California sun, doesn't it? And uh, yeah. after, after Dark My Sweet. And, uh, you know, there are a handful of other other examples of that around about this period too. Um, so Yeah, the one, one that springs to mind is another one is uh, Near Dark. Near Dark, yeah, yeah, which, of course, is vamp- but it's very noir, isn't it, in the style? It's incredibly, it's incredibly noir. You, you, take the, you could take the vampires out of that and it'd still be... You know, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Because, it, because it's that relationship between you know the, the the main lead and the female vampire sort of thing, and how that develops. It's very noirish, and that sort of travelling through that again. You know, this this heated landscape. Exactly. Um, yeah. 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 I think yeah. Uh, visually for me, with that nineties element as well, and the and that op- the opening scene in the desert, it made me think of a life a life less ordinary. Uh, yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a, a valid comparison as well, certainly, yeah, yeah. So in terms of the, the, the background to the picture, I've mentioned the the um, source in the Jim Thompson novel, published in 55, this was, so the film was made 45, 35 years after that, sorry, my maths is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, I mean, did anybody else want to say anything about the background or the context? Uh, well, not really, because I mean, I, I don't know enough about it. <laughs> that's what I mean, it's coming come to this completely fresh sort of thing, I don't have you know i could sort of repeat what i've read around it sort of thing but i think you've sort of covered what most of it there i think i think we mentioned the neon wow as well we got slightly ahead of ourselves and, and certainly that's a, a strong context for it this sort of burgeoning uh, interest in noir 
in, mm. in filmmaking, which it, it, it sort of accompanied a, an academic interest in classic film noir in the 80s as well. Um, books being published about classic films noir um, and filmmakers sort of being uh, um, interested in making noir stories, but not in, excuse me, in the classic noir ways necessarily. But noir, film noir was always a quite a malleable category anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yes, it's got a feel to it. I don't. I don't know if you agree. But, uh, sort of the early Tarantino films, in terms of uh, a movement <coughs> of k- kinds of films with a kind of style, and and people sort of being um, sort of turned on to those kind of films of uh, oh, what these these films in the background, you know, with Tarantino, obviously it's crime and uh, that sort of thing. But you know, yeah, very sort of cine literate and awareness of. The history of film, I think, yeah, and, and that's evident in a lot of neo noir. Um, like you say, Tarantino, has, uh, Tarantino kind of is the poster boy for it, I think, in many ways, with Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, particularly, but uh, and Jackie Brown, of course, but uh, but um, it had been going on before, hadn't it? With um, I mean, obviously after that, my sweet, but the Coens, of course, yeah. you know, very cinematic filmmakers. I mean, it, films, it feels like a film that Tarantino would name check in a very fast paced mm. way in, a, in an interview. Yes, um, yeah, yeah. This does like so it's something where you're not quite aware of sort of thing, and it's like, oh no, yeah, yeah, no, I, I have to die my sweet. Which was a, well, yeah, like the way he does when he's just mm. gabbling away, sort of thing, and just throwing throwing stuff out, especially in his yeah, early, you know, '90s style interviews that he did. Yeah, you, you did make him sound like a bit like a manic leprechaun there, AD. I think that was, <laughs> <laughs> was uh, quite a yeah. But yeah, but then sort of, I have to dark my sweet, that's sort of garbled, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But, uh, I mean, it might surprise you to know, if you didn't know, that this was one of three different Jim Thompson adaptations that came out in 1990. There was um, Stephen Frears' The Grifters, which I would imagine you've probably seen with Annette Benning and uh, John Cusack. Um, that was a, an adaptation of a Jim Thompson book, and Maggie Greenwald's The Kill Off, which, to my great shame, I've I've never seen. It's it's an adaptation of one of Thompson's later novels. It's supposed to be very very good, but it's just one of those films that sort of eluded me. Um, um, so you know there were three Jim Thompson adaptations in 1990, and 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 those kind of adaptations of Jim Thompson novels veer from very Hollywood films. Of course, in in the 70s you had. Uh, Pecking Power's uh, uh, adaptation of The Getaway with um, hmm. Steve McQueen and Ali McGraw in 73, which uh, sort of drops the last chapter of the book, which is the most, in, some, in many ways, the most interesting part of the book. But uh, it's, it's a compromised adaptation of it. And there was a fairly dreadful 1976 adaptation of The Killer Inside Me by Bert Kennedy with Stacey Keach. Um, uh, uh, they, they were sort of very Hollywood um, approaches to um, Thompson's work, but then on the other hand, you've got these really weird, sort of not weird, but but quirky, very personal, very almost experimental films based on uh, Thompson's work. So there's Alan Corneau, the French filmmaker, made an adaptation of a Thompson novel um, called A Hell of a Woman in 1979 called Semi Noir, uh, which is an incredible film. If you get if you've not seen that, if you if you get the chance to watch it, watch it. It's it's one of those films that would go on, you know, if I had to draw up a top 10 list, it would be somewhere near the top. And also Bertrand Tavernier, another French filmmaker, made um, Coup de Torchon, which was... Uh, an adaptation of um, Thompson's book, Pop, Population 1280, in 1981. So you, you've got this kind of 
And I think that speaks a lot of Thompson's skill as a writer. He is good at plotting in a way that Hollywood likes, but also he asks these existential questions that sort of filmmakers like Alan Corneau and Bertrand Tavernier um, that obviously seem to appeal to them. Um, so he's kind of one of these pulp writers that, that, that there's a depth to his work, but also some solid plotting to it that, that appeals to filmmakers that want to make a very sort of commercially viable picture but also appeals to those that want to make something a bit more sort of um, philosophical. Um, I think Foley's film, Foley's af- adaptation of After Dark, My Sweet, sits somewhere in the middle. It's got these moments that <clears throat> are sort of quite existential, that sort of allude to quite sort of a philosophical worldview. But on the other hand, it, it, you know, it's got, it's, quite, uh, it's got a good sense of plotting to it, I think, as well. That, that's not quite a Hollywood film, but it, it's got that, that sense of um, handle handling on the material, which probably reflects Foley's sort of background and and, uh, and aspirations, which we'll come on to a bit later when we talk about personnel. Um, but, I mean, the thing the thing about Thompson's work is that his, his novels feature distinctly amoral protagonists as narrators, and, and I think Collie fits the bill. I don't know how you feel about Collie as a narrator, as a protagonist. Is he a nice fella? Uh, do we want to do that now, or do we want to sort of do that when we discuss, analyse it afterwards? Well, I've got a few more things that I'll sort of say, and then we'll come on to that then. That's that's probably a good point, A.D. Um, I mean, the recurring theme in Thompson's work is alcoholism. He says, uh, taking a drink in the middle of the day. <laughs> uh, but um, it's the only way you get through this lockdown, isn't it? Um, but alcoholism is a recurring theme, and there's some excellent drinking, I think, in this film to establish character. Um, you know, Faye consumes gallons of red wine. Uh, <laughs> There's, there's the old bottle, the old reliable bottle of Jane. Yeah, yeah. It's getting a bit stressful. Let's pour ourselves a, you know, a, a couple of fingers of J&B. Collie tries to seduce Faye by bringing a huge bottle of red wine to her, but he trips and it smashes and stains his clothes. Feels very symbolic, that, doesn't it? You know, murder and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um and, and, and Faye says, take the bottle to Collie. She says, take the bottle. When you're lonely, the bottle can look mighty good company. And that's very Jim Thompson. And I'm, again, like I say, I've not read the novel in about 10 years, but uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure that that's, that's the kind of line that I imagine is in the book. Um, I mean, the thing about Thompson, like I say, is a book writer, but an astute, intuitive observer of human psychology. Lots of black humour as well, which I think you get from Foley's adaptation. And James Foley... In a contemporary interview, um, you know, when After That My Sweet was being released, said uh, Thompson's books are very sophisticated. And this is a quote from him. Thompson's books are very sophisticated in their psychoanalytic underpinnings. They may have been too complex for the 50s. His books are very sexual and violent, and he's honest about those feelings. He sees that human beings are vicious, offensive and defensive animals out for emotional blood. And that's Fowley who directed the film. And I think he captures that aspect of Thompson very well in, in, in in this film adaptation. As I said, there were three Thompson adaptations in, in 1990, but 1990 was also the, the peak of that neo-noir cycle. The video release of After Dark, My Sweet coincided pretty much with that of Dennis Hopper's The Hot Spot, based on the novel by Charles Williams, and also another high-profile neo-noir, which was Jack Nicholson's sequel to the um, Chinatown, The Two Jakes. And I think, like many neo-noirs, the film's uh, After Dark My Sweet is clearly not afraid of presenting unsympathetic characters, and that's something that that, that, that marks it as very different from sort of Hollywood mainstream fare, I think. Um, 
I mean, of course, some people said the Anwar, um as a as a as a I hesitate to call it a movement, but certainly as a subgenre, subtype, um, has been cited as fusing the art cinema traditions with mainstream cinema, um, and in particular, this film, After Dark My Sweet, has been cited as an example of film soleil um, neo noir set in sun drenched settings, and and this includes, of course, Paris, Texas, Red Rock, Red Rock West. Hotspot as well, um, Dennis Hopper's The Hotspot, and also Carl Colpert's Cal Delusion, which uh, is a film that, that, that I've got a lot of time for, and um, um, again, it's a very underseen uh, little picture. Um, the, in terms of, as well, in terms of the background production, um, I think if making a film like this was, was possible by the existence of mid-tier Indian semi-indie uh, production houses at the time, which, which don't really exist anymore. And, and the film was financed by Avenue Pictures. That was the company owned by Kerry uh, Brockow, who had financed Gus Van Sant's drugstore cowboy a year earlier. Um, and, and that keeps cropping up on the telly um, over Christmas. I keep sort of turning the telly on this drugstore cowboy. On. I, I stop and I think, <laughs> I should, this is a much better film <laughs> than I recall. Um, uh, and, and, and he also had, had uh, produced Alan Rudolph's Strange... Um, Trouble in Mind in 85 with Chris Christopherson and Jim, Jim Jarmusch is down by law another neo noir in 86 and Alex Cox is straight to hell in 87 um, and in the 90s uh, he would go on to serve as the executive producer on Robert Altman's The Player and Shortcuts as well so you know and, and it, it kind of speaks to that, that, that period in the late 80s early 90s of, of sort of indie semi indie films that had decent budgets as well, you know that, that, that could uh, that they had decent budgets to that, that could be evident on screen, uh, it, um, and I, I don't think that exists anymore because you've got this sort of um, polarization of the the, the tent pole blockbuster and sort of straight to video trash straight to, straight to, straight to, straight to streaming now, isn't it? Straight to streaming, yeah, yeah. Quite quite a few neo noir stuff just pops up on Netflix these days. So I think it's quite interesting. Well, it, it had a bit of a revival as well, I think, in the mid-90s. With I'm not saying necessarily these were particularly good films, but, you know, there's sort of Dolph Lundgren, um, uh, <laughs> Steven Seagal. Sort of neo-noir plots with a lot of action in them, straight to DVD. Uh, but, yeah, Netflix is, 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 is maybe because there was an adaptation of uh, Devil All the Time, wasn't there? Um, which I haven't seen yet on Netflix, um, but that's a very sort of neo uh, noirish narrative. I think I've read the book, but I've not <clears throat> not seen the Netflix adaptation yet. The budget for the picture after Dad My Suit was seven million dollars, um, and Avenue Pictures' general aim was to make films for less than ten million, and that enabled them to approach risky subject matter and hopefully make some sort of profit. Um, but I think again, shrinking avenues for distribution, other than potentially sort of streaming outlets, to perhaps put the kibosh on production companies like Avenue taking risks like this. Um, but yeah, that, that's what I put. Uh, those are my notes on the production background. Um, so uh, yeah, you've had to listen to me waffle for a bit. <laughs> Hopefully, somebody right. else will talk a bit. <laughs> so. Um, in terms of contemporary responses, did anybody dig up anything uh, from any of the, the reviews at the time? Um, I couldn't really find. I don't know whether it's just me, but I couldn't, couldn't couldn't find a lot. There was there didn't seem to be a lot written around it that I could sort of pick up on. So I don't know. Did you find anything, Pete? Uh, well, I, again, um, I mean, I haven't got them with me now, but I, I looked at the, uh, the those big phone book um, film guides and. Uh, um, there was a, a couple of mentions in there, and um, again, the, the 
commenting on the um, how um, Coley's sort of caught up with these heavy drinkers, and uh, I don't know. I suppose yes, there was a, a constant sort of J and B bottle there, but it wasn't something that sort of, apart from obviously um, with Wade at the beginning. Um, but uh, I don't know. There were he doesn't um, Dunn certainly doesn't uh, pull uh, pour a. a measure of a uh, heavy drinker when he's uh, <laughs> talking to Coley. Um, but yes, uh, I think mixed reviews, um, sort of, uh, and I, I guess, you know, I mean, we'll come to it at the end, uh, our sort of overall sort of feel, and uh, I think it sort of matches my sort of take from it, um, quite a mixed sort of response. Yeah, good stuff. Yeah. I mean, I've put... Um... You know, I, I, I sort of looked at some of the contemporary reviews. It, 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 obviously, the film, I don't think, did big business, but it got some good responses from uh, critics. Patricia O'Hare in the New York Daily News said, um, and I think this is quite pertinent, uh, possibly something we'll talk about a bit later. She says, this is, although it's set in Chica- uh, California, not Chicago, California. That's a drink getting to me, isn't it? Um, mm. But um, that was a joke. Please laugh. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's set in California. She says, this is not chic Palm Springs and there's not much else to do in this sunbaked town. Foley captures the sultry heat, the kind that saps energy to such a degree that sitting in front of a fan, waiting for night to fall, is usually the day's major excitement. And I think you get that from the that scene in the bar, Bert's Bar at the start, mm. where um, Collie meets Faye and they're sort of sitting in that bar. and That sense of lethargy inspired by the heat that sort of explodes into violence as well. Um, I think that that's captured quite well. David Denby's review in the New York magazine said the characters are, and I like this phrase, constitutionally incapable of ever speaking the truth about anything. I think that's quite a nice phrase. That's a quote from his review. It, and he said particularly that Uncle Bud offers the the um, the character uh, uh, played by Bruce Dern. Uncle Bud offers an in, a quote an insinuating invasion of everyone's privacy with compliments and dubious encouragement, and I, I like that. I think I think that fits that that sort of that uh, 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 that character very well. Uncle Bud, mm. I think everybody's mm. had a, an uncle <laughs> a bit like that, or you know, some sort of, you know some sort of figure of authority that that just likes to invade your, your privacy and and, mm. and 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 make it look like they're encouraging you but that's really shanking you in the back and uh, i can really I mean, relate the, to that i'm sure we all can is, just looking on um you know uh, there's some some high rated reviews here sort of thing um i mean and the problem is sort of thing with reviews is like you kind of look looking at some of them and you're thinking they seem like two reviewing two films um yes. i mean i like ebert's i think roger ebert you know uh, his reviews always uh, encapsulation is quite quite apt. One of the purest and most uncompromising of modern film noir. It captures all all the lonely, exhausted lives of its characters. And I think that's quite quite apt for this. Yeah, he um, really liked the film, didn't he? I think. It's, yeah. It's whereas like... Rolling Stone's Peter Travers says it's a hot wired crime thriller that captures Thompson's flair for hard action, malicious wit, and fevered eroticism. Like, okay, <laughs> yeah, that's the film I watched. <laughs> <laughs> So in terms of personnel, uh, we've got obviously Foley as the director. I don't know. Do you, any of you, either of you, have any sort of experience with Foley's other work? Or no, I'd be um, interested to hear about what Wales he's done. I mean, obviously his main one uh, that I'm aware of was uh, Glengarry Glen Ross. Oh, yes, which came after 
yeah, it yeah. did come after sort of thing, which um, you know is is fantastic. Um, is you know one of the one of my favourite films of, of that period, and one you know one of the, one of, just that that script. I mean, Mamet's script is is mm. just is, is so super sharp. It's it's incredible. The visualisation of it is so incredible. Yeah, well. it's it's but, amazing sort of thing, and it, it's it's such a great great character piece. Um, so that that was my main. I didn't know we did at close range. Um, I remember that. That was quite interesting. Film. Yeah, yeah, that is good. That is good sort of thing. But I just seem to. I mean, you know, I was a bit disappointed because I'm not obviously not following him sort of thing. But I was a bit disappointed to see he's done the last two Fifty Shades um, films. Yeah, Freedom, yeah. Uh, which is it was like. Oh. But uh, he seemed to have sort of moved into TV a lot, and he did a lot of Madonna videos. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think probably <clears throat> quite a few of those uh, noir directors. I mean, Carl Franklin, John Dahl. John Singleton as well, before he passed away, didn't he, a couple of years ago. But a lot of them sort of ended up doing a lot of TV. Uh, Foley particularly... Um, um, I mean, it's good TV. It's good to, well, it. I was going to say it's beyond the US reboot of House of Cards, wasn't it? Which um, yeah. is pretty, pretty damn good, to be fair. I think. Yeah, he did episodes of Hannibal. He's done some Twin Peaks. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, that doesn't surprise me. Twin that Peaks. Fits. Twin Peaks, yeah, that, that, that fits. Yeah, yeah. It, it does. It fits very nicely, I think. Uh, I mean, we did do one. It was one of the later episodes, so you know, the second season. Yeah. Second, yeah, episode two, episode two seventeen. He did, which is you know, uh... yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not say anything more about later episodes of Twin yeah. Peaks. <laughs> um, but his career, his career began with Reckless in eighty four. Um, uh, and, and uh, as you said, AD, he made um, uh, critically, critically regarded, but it was commercially unsuccessful at close range, which I think fits into the neo noir category. I really like at close range, I think. Um, I think it's an excellent film. And he sort of bounced into different territory with uh, it, it, it made some music videos for Madonna and also directed Who's That Girl in 87, which is, uh, I remember that coming out as well. <laughs> um, but. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's a that's a yeah. <laughs> I don't even know what to say about that, to be honest. Um, let's just move swiftly on. Let's move swiftly. <laughs> um, but the the Madonna sort of connection comes back a bit later. I'll, I'll sort of explain that in a few minutes. Um, but he made uh, Glen Gary Glen Ross, as you say, which I think is an excellent adaptation of the play. The Chamber, which is a John Grisham adaptation, wasn't it? I believe. Oh, Fear. Fear is an interesting film with Mark, Mark, Marky Mark, Mark Wahlberg, and Reese Witherspoon, made in '96. Bit straw dogsy. I, I, I like to sort of think of Fear as. I've not seen it for a long time. It's an interesting film, not a great one, but uh, but certainly there's elements of neo noir in that. I think. Um, I think was it William Peterson's in that as well, isn't he? As the the father. Yeah. Um, that used to come up on TV quite a lot, and the Corrupter, uh, with again with with, with Wahlberg and, and Charion Fat, that was sort of part of Charion Fat's journey, taking that heroic bloodshed sort of style, if you like, persona into Hollywood films in '99. Oh yeah, I remember that uh, one. Yeah. It's not a bad film actually. To be, I mean, it's not a great picture, but it's I think it's a, a reasonably good film. Um, and that was kind of, I, I remember in the late nights, I thought, you know, those films that had Mark, Mark Wahlberg in them, I thought, Mark Wahlberg acting. <laughs> <laughs> but The Corruptor was one of those where I thought, actually, yeah, I can sort of see this. And, and along with Singleton's Four Brothers, which again is, is a sort of a remake of, reworking of The Sons of Katie Elder, the, the John Wayne Western, with Wahlberg as, as one of the brothers. And um, 
Ah, oh, Andre Benjamin, isn't it? Is in that as well as one one of the others. Um, but uh, yes, yeah, that's a pretty good picture. Um, again, by another sort of noir, neo noir alumni, you might say, Singleton in that case. Most recently, of course, the last two Fifty Shades films, Fifty Shades Freed and Fifty Shades Darker, which uh, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I've, I've, I, I, I'm lost for words. Yeah. <laughs> of those dreadful novels made it to the screen um, and um, sustained an audience. I, I've got, I've got no clue. But I assume it paid well. We did, we did, um, we did confidence as well. Confidence is yeah with um, Rachel Weisz and yeah uh, Ed Burns, Andy Garcia is is in there. Justin Hoffman, yeah. That's a good film. I like I like that. 2004, I think, wasn't it? Mm. Um, I've forgotten about that, actually. But uh, again, um, you know, the, the House of Cards reboot, which I think is excellent. I mean, regardless of how sort of shade's been sort of thrown at it by the allegations against uh, Kevin Spacey, I think the House of Cards remake is, is, is super. Uh, up until the last season, <laughs> was, was was pretty darn good, to be honest. Um I mean, the Madonna sort of, not Madonna influence, but the Madonna, Madonna connection carries through the cinematography as well, um, which is by Mark Plummer. Mm. And I think Mark Plummer's photography for the film, there's, there's some lovely, it's obviously widescreen. Um, I'm not sure if it's shot on Super 30, shot Super 35 or not. Um, I've got a feeling it might be, but certainly, you know, it's, it's intended for widescreen. Um, and, and there's this lovely, wonderful photography of, of desert uh, heat, um, and you get so frequently he places plumber places collie in the center of the compositions uh, and sort of anchors these scenes by uh, these kind of close-ups of collie right dead center very nicely shot i think captures the desert light very well plumber's background to um, go back to the madonna thing plumber's background was in in music videos it, it um, shot chris isaac's you owe me some kind of love i'm not gonna i, I, I nearly sang, sang the title of that um I'm, I'm not going to sort of torture you with that. Um, and also, that is express yourself. Express yourself. Don't, don't, don't do it, Paul. Don't do it. Oh, <laughs> um, it also photographed, and this might interest you, um, Salmon King's Two Moon Junction in 88, which I'm sure okay. you've seen. <laughs> anyway, think. Don't deny uh, it. It's the 80s equivalent of Fifty Shades of Grey, wasn't it? Two Moon Junction with Cheryl uh, Fenn. Oh, all right, okay. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm aware of that film. There's, there's no shame in having watched Two Moon <laughs> Junction. Uh, but that, actually, for for a piece of sort of mid-budget grade B smut, which is what it is, it's a very nicely shot film, <laughs> Two Moon Junction. What was the other one as well? The, the one where she was in the box? Oh, Boxing Helena, that was... Uh, Boxing Jennifer. Helena, that's the one, yeah. Yeah, that was David Lynch's daughter directed that, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and again, Twin Peaks connection, Cheryl and Fenn. Um, he, he also shot the 92 indie film The Water Dance by Neil Jimenez and, and Michael Steinberg, um, which I haven't seen for years. And, and that's another film that I was sort of looking at his credits and thought, well, I remember that, but it's dropped off the radar. And it's a very good film. And that, again, that was originally to have starred Jason Patrick, and that was in 92. Um, and he, he directed... Um, uh, Kevin Spacey he comes up again in um, Albino. Uh, uh, he, he photographed Kevin Spacey's directorial debut, Albino Alligator, in '96, which is a pretty good film. 
to be honest, with Matt Dillon and Faye Dunaway. And also the US remake of Pulse, the Korean horror film in, in 2006, you photographed that. Another credit of Plumbers is um, Beyonce's Crazy in Love video, which is, <laughs> which is, <laughs> I mean, that video sticks in the mind, doesn't it? Do you know what I mean? It was, on, it was in Ubiquitous, wasn't it? And whenever it came out in about 2006. Yeah. Um, but that, that's pretty much nearly, I think that's pretty much everything that he's done. He's got, he's got quite a compact career, um, uh, considering how well shot this is and how well shot Tomb Raider Junction is and how well shot Water Dance is and Albino Alligator is. It seems strange that he's not done much more than that. There, there must be reasons, but... Yeah, he, he worked on Armageddon and Alien 3 as well. Yeah, as a um, was it second unit or something second like unit, that? Additional additional yeah. photographer, international unit, and he's working on something called the Second City or something at the moment. Yes, yeah, like show left on Earth. Whatever. Yeah, I, I, I don't know anything about that, but I did see it on his credits, and I thought, well, um, at least he's still sort of doing stuff, I guess. What about the casting? Should we start with Jason Patrick? Okay, uh, Jason Patrick is an interesting one, isn't he? <clears throat> I would put the thing with Jason Patrick is that for I would he's in my Christian Slater category um, in the fact of like he promised a lot in the 80s and early 90s and never really delivered yeah, yeah. Um, and, well, I, I, and I think he's done he did probably maybe some more interesting films than Christian Slater did but uh, but Christian you know Christian Slater on the back of Heathers and things like that and you know Robin of Princess you're thinking oh great a new good action you know a good lead amount and never never really you know, and I think the problem was sort of Don't again. Pump up the volume. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Pump up the volume. But the problem was that I think um, they both scuppered, maybe scuppered their um, careers Great. with two two really bad action films in the nineties, uh, yeah. with Speed Two and Broken Arrow. Yeah. Um, and I think you know so, uh, but Patrick is interested in this. He's a bit more you know he's he's he's, he's quite he's. he's I like his depiction of the character. I do. I think he's good in this, but he's, he, he never, I think he, I don't know what, what it was, sort of thing, poor career choices, but I always thought he was going to do more than what he did. Yeah, I, th- I think you're quite right in saying that, that, that Slater and, and Patrick tried to expand the palette a bit with his, with action films. And I mean, particularly Patrick, um, Speed 2, Cruise, Cruise Control. I don't think anybody came out of that film looking good, did they? <laughs> no. possibly, possibly Willem Dafoe. You know, people still look at his performance in, in that and say, oh, wasn't he good as the villain in that dreadful film? But, <laughs> um, but likewise, like you say, Christian Slater with Broken Arrow, which nobody sort of remembers well, do they? Um, no. So, uh, so, But these were both actors that... The, 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 the way, I won't I call them character actors, because, you know, they were sort of in that... that uh, um, Slick, sort of pretty boy category, weren't they in the late eighties? But certainly they had character type roles, didn't they? And uh, Patrick, of course, had played in the Lost Boys um, and also the Beast, the Beast of War, that that film about the Russians in Afghanistan, which is 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 uh, quite an interesting picture, I think. And um, he was yeah, sort I mean, of. I mean, Slater. I mean, you know, you True Romance as well. He's good in that. Um, yeah. 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 Uh, you know, in his interview with the vampire, did some interesting films, and then yeah, you can see, you can see the drop off if you look at his uh, Boston uh, Broken Arrow, just seems to kill it. Mm. Uh, yeah, and I think I think that, that sort of reflected a shift in Hollywood, didn't it, towards sort of these big action films? I mean, even Nicolas Cage with Con Air, uh, yeah, you know, 
uh, you know, these actors in, in these kind of pictures ended up working in action films in the in the 90s. Um, and Tom Cruise, you know, made that transition in the 90s. He's still doing it, isn't he? You know, with the um, Mission Impossible pictures. Mm, absolutely. But, uh, uh, I mean, Patrick was the son of Jason Miller, who, who played in The Exorcist, um, as, a, as, a, as you probably know, and uh, he was the grandson of Jackie Gleason. He was, he was only 23 in this, which sort of strikes me as, I don't know, I, I, I sort of, I see Collie as a bit older. I, don't, I think 23, to me, seems quite young. <laughs> he didn't, um, didn't seem 23 in the film. No, no. He definitely feels much more sort of well-worried, doesn't he? Um, and the following year, he was cast in Lily Finney's The Nook's Rush, uh, which is a good film, isn't it? I think, Rush. Um, uh, that's an interesting picture. Um, but I think he, he plays that character quite well um, in, in, in After Dark My Sweet, the punchy ex-boxer. His gait's very defensive, isn't it? He's sort of hunched over. He's carrying that paper bag about with him. Um, and that under-the-brow gaze, which sort of communicates his, his how uh, unstable he is. Um, mm. And his body language is quite clumsy as well, like an overgrown child. I think it's it's quite quite a good performance, I think, um, in many ways. I don't know. Peter, what do you think about that? Yeah, well, I, I'd, I'd sort of, uh, especially... Um, in the beginning of the film, I, I, I had sort of consider Patrick and Ward together. That you couldn't sort of you couldn't accuse them of like any chastity or naturalism. For me, it was it's like it it seems very theatrical. I think Patrick hams up his sort of shuffling gait, like um, as if he's got a rock in his shoe or or Lon Chaney or Ratso Rizzo <laughs> riding on his back. You know, it's it's very for me. It was oh, I'm playing this character that's got this physical quirk um and um with the dialogue between patrick and ward especially at the beginning it just seems deliberately sort of tread the boards clear sort of uh, so that verbal sparring uh, is uh, very theatrical um it reminded me and i'm gonna kill myself there making this reference because the, the director's name is is gonna is gonna trip me up it reminded me uh, to a quite a reduced sort of level of um Barawa, Barra, <laughs> edit this, Paul. Please edit it. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to. Barawa's closet land, um, with Ward taking over the sort of uh, the manipul- manipulative sort of Alan Rickman. So obviously not on that that level, but the, the, the you know there's a clarity of the delivery of the lines. It's very two man piece on stage. Um, is is you know we, we you've got that huge um comparison as soon as bruce dern comes along he's sort of his his performance is more like a, a warm soft flannel to the face compared to these uh, very stiff sort of performed performances of, of the yeah um is you know bruce dern is, is is he comes across with this comfortable informality um and i mean you can't not love um, Bruce Stern. I mean, he, he saved the forest after all, didn't he? So um, he's uh, it's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, Dan played played his role as Uncle Bud. This was a year after um, Hal Ashby, who was obviously a friend of Dan's, uh, had passed. Um, and Hal Ashby had played uh, directed Dan in, in Coming Home. Which Dern, who was, of course, we know is a very left-leaning actor politically, had played a very right-leaning character against John Voight, who's a very right-leaning actor playing a very left-leaning character. It's a wonderful bit of casting in Coming Home. That's a great film. But um, 
Uh, I mean, Dan, Dan's career at this point uh, had evolved. I mean, at the start of his career, he'd, he'd, he'd played largely villains. He was uh, known to me in my childhood as, as, as the, that actor that shot John Wayne in The Cowboys, um, as, as he probably was for many people. Um, but also Hang Them High, you know, he's, he's really unpleasant in Hang Them High. But there's always something to like about Dan. Mm. Even, even when he's playing a, a really unpleasant character, um, he plays it so well that you you can't help but not necessarily root for him, but but certainly feel some sense of empathy for him. His characters have complexity, I think. Even if you look at them on the page, the sort of two-dimensional villains in some instances, in some of those early westerns particularly, there's a depth that's added to them by um, Dane's performances, I think. Um, you've got Silent Running, of course, uh, Coming Home, like I said. I mean, more recently, Nebraska, which I thought was a great film. Mm. Mm. And, uh, and 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 um, you get the sense, I think, with this this picture, this performance as Uncle Bud, that, that Bud knows that this is his final sort of shot at, at, at once. Mm. Not, not greatness, but his final shot at something. Um and I think that's kind of he sees in Collie that opportunity to do this thing, you know, achieve this uh, uh, this, this this goal that he's had stewing away in the background for a number of years. New, the New York Magazine Review says that uh, Uncle Bud is is quoted here threatening in a vague, elusive way, and I think that that sort of hits the nail on the head. In, in he sort of the sort of periphrasis. He talks around the issue, and he's sort of offering these vague threats. And well, I know a few guys on the force, and, you know, and, and, but he never gets to the heart of what it is that he, who he is that he knows or how he intends to achieve this thing. Um, but he's, 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 he allows the rhetoric, if you like, the 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 pleasure of the rhetoric to sort of uh, offer these vague threats or these vague plans and so on and so forth. Aidy, did you did you have anything you wanted to say about Bruce Dern's performance? Um, I think it's very good, as he is in most things. Um, I can't believe you haven't mentioned the Burbs. If I'm perfectly honest. Oh, well, the Burbs, yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. Um, which, <laughs> I, which, if you say Bruce Dern to me, it goes Burbs, Silent Running. Um, you know, that, that's the Burbs is. I don't know why. So I think I think it's because I've, I watch it so often. It's always on, um, and I always catch it, and I'm like, you know what? I'm going to watch the Burbs again. Um, my my partner despairs of me because she must have seen it more than she ever wanted to. Um, 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 so yeah, I mean he's very good in this sort of thing, and he, he, he's playing that that typical uh, noir role, the one who wants to sort of be in control. Do, do, do you know this is it's a bit? Of, I'm not sure. Say a sort of stereotype of the uh, you know a cliche of this sort of of the genre itself of the like you said the, the one last the, this is our one last chance to be out and on our way. Um, and the sort of person. The the thing I I, I got um, from from his performance sort of thing was that yeah he's 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 very good at at, at sort of portraying um, someone who thinks they know what they're doing, but turns out underneath sort of thing that it's a bit of a a bit of a sham. Similar to yeah. you know, similar to the Burbs as well, um, in the fact that he plays that sort of militarist militaristic sort of neighbour sort of thing who really doesn't know what the hell they're doing. Um, you know, I mean, this is a, this is a more subtle version of that, obviously, but it's the similar. It's just, I think he's he's quite good in that in that sort of. He's not. You don't. He's good at drawing your sympathy for a character that's not particularly sympathetic. Yes. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think what you, what you say about um, you know these characters that sort of have these plans but, but don't necessarily know how to sort of achieve them. When 
Cully goes ahead with the kidnapping and kidnaps the boy. And, and he gets back with the boy and, and they have that conversation. And again, they're pouring out the J and B, aren't they? Because this is a point of stress. And, um, and that's when Collie delivers that line that I keep quoting. But uh, but you get the sense that for Dan and um, uh, for Uncle Bud and Faye, it's it's a shock. Like they didn't know that he was going to do going to do this. Um, and 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 uh, that struck, struck me on this viewing is, is this sense that well did did they actually know that Cully was actually going to follow through with this plan that 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 that, that Uncle Bud had, had sort of hinted at. Um, well, that, that's that's what they say at the, at the start, isn't it? That's what she says. She says, just move on, go away. This is a, a you know a, a a plan that will just fizzle out, and exactly, yeah. nothing, nothing 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 will come of it. Sort of thing. If you just leave and and move on, and yeah. so it's you know it needs that. The, 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 he's the you know uh, Patrick's character is obviously the catalyst for it to to happen. It's quite interesting because it, it's 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 unnecessary, isn't it? It's just a. A, a plan like say might it might have just gone away and it might never have happened and it's yes this big plan with all these sort of wide-reaching sort of implications of what happens to the characters and it, it just wasn't you know they don't particularly need the money or you know there's no, no. Sort of great emphasis on why they're doing it no no other than uncle bud i think sees it as his last shot at something mm. whatever that is and there's a line in the film somewhere isn't there that um, I think Collie says something along those lines, and I've, I've got my, I've got my formal notes. I've got my notebook um, that I'm just sort of flicking through. But it says something about um, it's like you don't know what it is that you're supposed to do. But uh, and Faye says, you know, it's got to be different. Something's got to change. And maybe that that feels like mm. the sense of stasis. That they feel like they've got to do something to change this very static life that they've got. And, and sort of kidnapping that child is is the only way to do it to break the the rut that they're in, if you like. Um, I, I got the impression. I got the impression. To, I mean, obviously, with what happens at, at the end of the film, sort of thing that they, they need. But it's, it, there doesn't seem to be any sense of urgency to it, sort of thing. And that mm. that sub subplot with the bar owner that obviously, you know, with what what, what then happens in the end at the airport, um, just seems to kind of come a bit out of left field. I don't know whether yeah, yeah. Something, something's missed in the whether something's been sort of you know taken out of the novel. I don't know if it's like that in the book itself, but it felt that that. I mean, we'll get back onto this when we talk about it sort of in a bit in the discussion analysis. Uh, um, but yeah, his his character just you know, I don't know. It just seemed to be something missing to. But then again, you know, that's probably the part of the reason of the film, isn't it? You know, Neon why you're not supposed to know everything. Things just yeah, kind of yeah. happen sometimes. Yeah, well, it's just. It, and, and you can see why Thompson's work sort of appealed to existential filmmakers like yeah. Alan Cole. because it's people's sort of people are judged by their actions, not by their intentions. You know, yeah. and Pecking Power as well was quite a sort of strong existential component to his films too. Um, what about Rachel Ward? Um, Rachel Ward, uh, I obviously aware of her eighties work. Yeah, uh, from Shark is Machine. Yes, um, pri- primarily Thornbirds. Thornbirds, um, yeah. There's a story um, about Jackie's machine uh, that um, apparently that Bert Reynolds saw her in a photograph in Time magazine and called up out of the blue to offer the part. I don't know how true that is, but that's kind of one of those apocryphal Hollywood stories. But he just saw this photograph, and because Jackie's machine was produced by Reynolds, wasn't it? I don't think I don't. Did he direct it? Or did he get somebody else uh, direct it? I, I don't. I, I could tell you. It's, it's one of those. But you, it's, it's dark Reynolds, isn't it? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that period, dark reddles, yeah, yeah. But he, he just called up out of the blue to offer the parent, and, and uh, apparently, you know, that, 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 it's that's quite, the it's story. Quite a, it's quite an unpleasant film, Shark is Machine. It is, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not, it's, not, it's no. like um, the, uh, it's in that sort of early, early 80s when the uh, 70s action heroes tried to do something dark, like Clint Eastwood, was it Tightrope? Um, Tightrope, yeah, yeah. It's in that sort of like, Bit sleazy, bit unpleasant. Yeah, so Death I, I Wish Two. Oh yeah, not pleasant. <laughs> not pleasant. Those films. You, need, you, need, you need a yeah. shower. You need to disinfect your hands. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you need not sewing. because you've been in touch with the coronavirus, but because you've watched Sharky's Machine yeah. on Channel Five on a Thursday night at ten o'clock. Um, and then, uh, and obviously, um, it, uh, I forgot she was in uh, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, which is brilliant. Yes, um, yeah, that's a great film. Um, and uh, the other one was uh, Against All Odds. Aside yeah. from that, you know, that was right, that's what I pretty much I knew about Rachel Ward. Uh, kind of, she was like, as far as I was aware, sort of thing, sort of, uh, I think she was a model. Was she a model? I think uh, so. Sort of Australia, yeah. Australian model, sort of thing. Is she great in this? Don't know. Don't, I think some of her lines, especially when she's trying to act angry towards the end, sort of thing, just don't the lines are not delivered particularly well, I don't think. I think you're right. I think you're right, Pete. In what you're saying, so I think it felt quite, it felt stagey. It didn't feel naturalistic, um, in comparison to someone like Dern. I, don't know. I remember one of the one of the reviews I did read. Um, I think she was she was sort of held out as the the weak point of the film by this particular um, reviewer. That he sort of um, I think he said that she didn't play a particularly um, effectual um, femme fatale character you know that she wasn't strong enough um yeah yeah i, I, I mean i don't the, the, the performance is okay I, I i just i just feel like she's just not right for the part personally i think and, and that's kind of one of the, the weak links for me is um like you say some of that delivery at the end's a bit stilted and i don't think it's the performance i think it's the juxtaposition of accents I think. Yeah, quite and, possibly. I, I, you know, I think I think the performance is good, but I I think she she, she reminds me a little bit of Kelly LeBrock in Hard to Kill. <laughs> it's Kelly LeBrock in Hard to Kill, wasn't it? Uh, Stick out of film. I don't. I can't remember. I've tried. I've wiped that film. From yeah, probably, probably for good, probably for good reasons. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, but uh, it's the sort of the, the harsh juxtaposition between these. Um, you know the 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 the, the, the sort of southern accent that uh, sort of California West Coast some um, accent that Patrick adopts and 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 and, Dan's. and then you've got um, um, Rachel Bond who's I think she's English isn't she but she's she's spent a lot of time in Australia so she's got this sort of weird uh, English Australian accent and it just it just seems out of place and um, uh, that's not to criticise her. But I just feel that if 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 it had been an American actress in the part, I think some of that dialogue would have flowed better. Um, you know, uh, uh, and I think it's just that the contrast of those those accents there. Um, I, I mean, you're right to say against all odds, she works very well in that picture. I think against Jeff Bridges and um, mm. James Woods, and and after this, she she uh, worked on a lot of smaller projects. Most recently, I was surprised that she, to see that she provided the voice of Peter Rabbit's mother. 
in the yeah, 2018 I film, which, I mean, I, I I had no clue. I saw that at the cinema with the kids, and uh, I had no clue. Watched it over Christmas again, actually, because I think it was on television. I had no clue that she she, she did that until I sort of looked at the credits on on, 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 uh, on uh, the IMDb. But, um, but yeah, I think, if, if if anything, I think she's a bit of a weak link. She's, she's, she's sympathetic in the role, but I don't buy her as this sort of femme fatale. I don't yeah, think. it's 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 like you'd probably want someone like um, uh, what's her name? Melanie uh, Griffith. No, I was gonna uh, Kim Basinger. Yeah, you know, like in LA Confidential. Yeah, um, that that to me is a you know that it, you you wanted somebody like you said naturally American. Yeah. Uh, to 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 sort of pull those pull that all together sort of thing or or I don't know. Uh, there were some good moments. I, I I think I liked her more at the beginning when she's sort of this, you know, the 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 lure. When she's just uh, this sort of drinking, um, and, and just you know, and she's just trying to sort of, you know, it, it, a bit not not innocent, but sort of thing, but just trying to sort of be this sort of person, you know, not sure where she's going and doesn't really want to get into this situation, but she's kind of falling into it. But she worked; it worked quite well then. It was just once it all started happening, I think it's there's, there's, there's that break in the middle where she finds out who he is. And then disappears off. It's from that when she has mm. to have this sort of different reaction to him that doesn't play well. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because uh, I mean, the thing about um, um, Collie is that he's, he's, he's quite clearly uh, uh, not a well balanced individual. I think as the film starts, and, and she must know this. Uh, certainly, Uncle Bud knows this, and you, you get this from Bruce Dern's performance. It's very wary of Collie. Because I think he some senses that it can explode into violence at any point, and that's established in the opening sequence in Bert's bar, isn't it? Where you know, Collie's looking at the, he's trying to make conversation with um, Bert. I don't know if it's mm. Bert actually, the, the bartender. I should say it's not necessarily the owner of the bar, is it? Uh, he said, "Oh, these must have cost you know, there's Bert's bar, those um, monogram, but you know the um, oh yeah, beer, beer yeah. mats." And he's trying to make this guy, I'm waiting for my friend Jack Billingsley, which is the story that Collie sort of tells everybody, isn't it? He tells yeah. it at the airport at the end. And the, the guy's not having it. He just wants to get his shift over with, I think. He's saying, yeah, drink your beer and piss well, off. Think, yeah, and, I think um, that... Sorry. And, and then he, 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 Collie explodes into violence, doesn't he? So we know from the start... And Faye witnesses this, doesn't she? That that was kind of where I was going with that. Sorry, Peter, you were going to say No, something. no, sorry, sorry. Um... But I think it was it was that scene with him sort of endlessly trying to spark up a conversation, sort of desperately, sort of um, just sort of rambling. Uh, first with the bartender, then with um, with Ward's character. So it, that 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 um, that fixed the uh, the voiceover for me. That uh, that made it okay because um, you know the the voiceover seemed an extension of of that personality trait that he was if he's not speaking it out loud then he's then he's speaking internally you know so the the, the that's when the narration sort of fit for me and yeah i think i think that's 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 a really good point peter i think we're, we're sort of getting into the analysis now so i think we'll probably sort of segue into that but uh, yeah. but yeah i think that's that's a really good point peter so i mean did any of you have anything particularly you wanted to say about sort of uh, the contents of it and, and well uh, i think i think my i liked it i didn't i, I didn't dislike it i, I mean it's it, it I found it, you know, intriguing to go through it sort of thing. My my only biggest thing was, and I think I I, th- I don't know whether this was a problem with me or just my expectation of it sort of thing, but um, was that I just I was expecting this. I was expecting some kind of well, not so much of a twist, but 
some more explanation on uh, Patrick's character. It seemed to me watching it sort of thing that everybody already knew him. Um, like the doctor, like Uncle Bud, like the way they were sort of talking to him and they were like, it almost felt like, you know, because with his you know mental impairment sort of thing, that his lack of memory of something had happened in the boxing fight, whether he was already part of their lives but couldn't remember. Um, yeah, I mean, was, didn't didn't know, and 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 that never sort of felt followed through. So it, it, it I know that you know this is noir is these drifting characters that kind of sort of hit off each other, and you know, the, the, it just it, there's no sort of fixed fixed time. You know, the, the connections are just in the moment sort of thing. But I don't know whether this this there, there seem to be hints that there were there was like the way the doctor spoke to him, like yes. seemed, to, seemed to know him, and it was like, well, do you or don't you? Well, um, the thing about Doc Goldman as well is, and, and, and that's a great performance, I think, from George Dickerson. It doesn't fit with the rest of the film. And I, I, mm. I, was, yeah, I remember when I first watched it, was that it felt like it stepped in from another movie. Uh, uh, that's, exactly uh, what I was, that's exactly what I was going to yeah, say. It's, well, it's, it's, yeah. I mean, immediately he recognises things about Collie as an escaped inmate from a mental hospital. And I remember the first time I saw the film, I thought, well... Um, is, is Doc Goldman a real character? Is he a figment of Collie's mm, imagination? Mm, because... Yeah. Up until a certain point, no other characters seem to interact with him, do they? He meets him in a... Is it a diner or a restaurant? Diner, isn't it, I think? Diner, and, yeah. And, and then he sort of texts him in. There's, there's, I don't know how long he's supposed to be staying with Doc uh, Goldman. This is in the book. I mean, I vividly remember these chapters from the book because you get the same impression from the book. And I think Foley's adaptation sort of handles that quite well. He says he's trying to help Collie, but is he? I mean, he's... he's you know, he, he, in acts of kindness in Thompson's world, Jim Thompson's world, and in this film, sort of always seem to come at a cost, don't they? You know, mm. so it's kind of when 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 Goldman's off to help, you think, well, what, what's he after? Is he mm. some is he, is he a predator of some kind? Mm. He sets him up in the place. Yeah, there's, there's, there's quite a sort of that's that sequence in the um in the house in the bedroom yeah. where he's lying there with the top off. It's quite yeah. some sort of homoerotic, um, sort of yeah. subtext and tensions there, quite 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 clearly yeah. sort of thing and. You know, you need to come back, and then the bit in the sequence in the car as well when he goes mm. when he drives out to see him. It, all, it I, don't, I don't know. It, it it just seemed to hint at like other connections between the characters mm. um, that never seemed to pay off. Which I felt I don't know. Maybe that was like I said. Maybe I was expecting a sort of more formulaic twist. Mm. That was maybe that was my you know me bringing something to the film that wasn't gonna, ever going to be there. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I think that, I think that doc, it, the whole thing, it was quite strange. And I think in that scene um, in the in the bedroom, I, I, I think there was an an off screen sort of touch to the leg or something that that implied, and that and I think yeah. that's when um, when the the sort of violence starts to erupt and, and and the idea of him staying, you know, stay around for a year, see what happens, sort of thing. But the, I, I remember there was a, there was a bit where. It was almost as if Coley had sort of stepped out of the movie where he goes to see Doc again. And it's like yes, he, yes. Yeah, he stepped out of it with all these sort of all the things going on. He stepped out to, to talk to this, um, you know, the sort of self analysis element sort of to it, and, and then comes back. And, and that was when I started to think, you know, is, is Doc really there? Is he, is he a figment of his imagination or is he some sort of function? You know that that doesn't that's not as straightforward as it seems. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that performance by Dickerson as as Doc Goldman is great. I think it's so sort of ambiguous and so nebulous, mm. and the way that he delivers his lines, it's it's almost like sort of Twilight Zone. 
It reminded <laughs> me of um, yeah, it reminded me of uh, uh, Peter Laurie. Yeah, yeah, he's got that sort of look to him, hasn't he? That sort of slightly, uh, sort of, slightly yeah, sleazy, like, but yes, you yeah, think you feel just, bad for calling him sleazy, don't you? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, but there, there was something like uneasy about him. Like there was some definitely some ulterior motives that he was, you know, he did. I don't think he had Collie's best interests at heart. That's what I got. From he, it. Yeah, he seemed he seemed to be like a do, a, a doctor, a psychiatrist from from a Cronenberg film or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 It's like um, uh, Hal Raglan in The Brood, you know, Oliver Reed's character in The Brood. Is it Hal Raglan in The Brood? But Oliver Reed's character in, in The Brood, or... Um, mm-hmm. so you, uh, you've got the Doctors, in, was it Shivers, and... Um, yeah. They've all got these alternative... Yeah, alternative... A bit like a J.G. Ballard sort of character, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's mm-hmm. that great line that he says, you see, my friend, your judgment just isn't good. <laughs> and I think going to stay at Doc, Doc Goldman's place is, an ev- is evidence of that, isn't it? Mm. Uh, but but there's kind of, I mean, he must be a real character because Collie kind of Collie breaks the Doctor's trust mm. later, doesn't he, by breaking into his office, home office, and stealing yeah. the insulin to give that to, that to the boy that they've kidnapped, and the boy looks like he's yeah, he must, yeah, because it's yeah. in the radio as well, sort of thing. After you know when he goes to the house and Collie's. Collie stabs him. Spoilers alert. Sorry. Um, um, when he stabs him, when he stabs him, there's you know. It, does he? I think he punches him. In, 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 punches yeah, a, a single blow. Does he punch? Does he punch? Yeah. I mean, it's quite. I mean, if he just stabbed him, I think it would have been less unpleasant. But he uses his skill as a boxer. Yeah. You know, which has been established in those flashbacks. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it's, but it's, men- it's mentioned on the radio, isn't it? When he's in the car. Yeah, when they're yeah. driving away at the end, sort of thing that they found the dead, the dead, the body yeah. of uh, the doctor. It's, so it's, he's, he's clearly a real character. Yeah, yeah. blow to the heart at the bottom of his rib cage. Yeah, um, and that that's kind of is because at that point Collie's trusted the doc. I mean, we see him as a bit sleazy, but I don't think Collie sees him in that way. That that sort of murder. And he knows what he's doing as a, as a boxer. He knows that puts him down. is likely to kill him. Um, it's it's quite. Quite unpleasant, I think. That's kind of one of the most unpleasant murders in the Noir, I think. And it feels very much to me. Um, I mean, I, I mentioned about sort of Jim Thompson's fascination with psychiatry, but it feels like a very sort of Oedipal thing, you know, like a symbolic killing of the father. Um, and that that's something that, that crops up throughout the the parent child relationship. Is something that crops up mm. throughout because, of course, he kidnaps the child, that child from that wealthy family that's sort of neglected by his parents. Um, uh, and, and in many ways, there's, there's this sort of Oedipal thing bubbling underneath with Faye and Uncle Bud. And Uncle Bud is this sort of figure of authority. I don't know what Faye's relationship with Uncle Bud is. Is it sexual? I'm not quite sure. Um, and, and Collie, sort of dis- his appearance disrupts this. Mm. Um, and she talks about a deceased husband. Um, you infer she was quite older than her. And she says, he's dead, Kevin. He's gone to hell. And why? What has he done, exactly? We never we never know this. But Collie's so childlike as well. And he sort of intrudes in this. And when he kidnaps the boy, he sort of treats him as an equal, doesn't he? He's, he, he almost like two children talking. He says, I'm not going to uh, let you come to any harm, doesn't he, to the boy? He makes that mm-hmm. promise to him. And and then he and Faye become like surrogate parents, but but Collie's like a child anyway. And then when he murders the doc, it's like killing the father. It's very Oedipal, I think. Um, you know, and, and not in a way that that sort of you point it and go, oh, this is a very Oedipal example of sort of film noir and neo noir. But it's there bubbling up under the mm. surface. 
this relationship between sort of patriarchal male authority and sort of violence and exploitation um, of Faye and Faye's vulnerability as a widow and Uncle Bud's sort of position in that. What what exactly has Uncle Bud done? What's his relationship with Faye? He's around the house a lot. Um, you know, what are his intentions there? Collie comes in, he disrupts that. Uh, Doc Goldman's got this kind of weird fixation on Collie, which, as you say, Pete, is is very sort of feels very homo erotic, doesn't it? Mm. Uh, even if it's not there in the text, it's I think it's mm. in the subtext. Um, so the, the, there's there's quite a lot there, I think. Um, well, again, I think with the Doc, he, he's I think there's a character that appears in a few films that you know he's trying to bring him back, isn't he, to the the hospital sort of thing to fix him. And of course, what happens at the end with Collie, we we realise he does he's got no interest in in going back to the hospital anyway, because, you know, it's, it's, it's all an act, but, um, <laughs> but um, yeah. I suppose on, like um, um, in the long goodbye with, um, with the, the doc that, that comes back, it's obviously very different. Oh yes. Yeah. 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 Um, I, I don't know what, what he's called, but he's, he's, he's the little guy from the blues brothers, isn't he? The, yes. The, the neo-Nazi. Um, yeah. Um, I can't remember his name, but yeah, yeah. No, but again, it's, it's that weird relationship of you know, I'm coming to your home to bring you back, come back to the hospital. You know, I'll everything will be all right. I'll I'll look after you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Is that altruistic? Is it is it self interest? And, and what's the motivation for that? And so on and so forth. There's a lot there. I mean, what did you think about the setting as well? You know, the setting in terms of location and time. Did anybody have anything that they felt about that particularly strongly? Uh, um, I mean, not, not not much more than what what I said earlier with its sort of allusions to you know early, other film stuff. But I, I do, you know, those, those I, I find it quite interesting sort of thing. The I think one of the most interesting parts sort of thing is that the way he just emerges from a cave at the beginning. Yeah. Um, which is you know quite quite unusual way to start a film and does that sort of long long sort of for and you know whether the symbolism of like emerging from a cave at the start of a film it's almost like that's that's what led me to believe sort of thing that his past was something extra sort of thing like he'd emerged out of this cave at the start and gone into this story but that what was before the cave what was before you know his life before this sort of, and we get these sort of shots of the the boxing and that's all we get so this is a huge gap between you know what happened in that boxing match and what happened there, sort of thing, and, and the sort of the openness of the environment um, just seemed to mm. sort of it kind of invite sort of thing like there's big gaps here, there's big empty spaces, mm. um, which I thought was quite interesting, sort of thing. But I don't know, I just I think I'm just <laughs> that maybe that type of view that I want some of that filled in mm. um, and, and uh, some somewhere along the line. I don't know. Yeah, I, I, there's so much of that sort of what you call backstory hints that is the, you know the mental hospital and so on and so forth, and I, I think because that's not made concrete, it, it, it's ambiguous, isn't it? And yeah. uh, how much of what he says about himself, like you said, Pete, he says he says, um, uh, Collie says in his narration, doesn't he, about uh, uh, to think that I'm stupid or I'm fed mm. up. People treat me like I'm stupid or I'm mad, but I'm not. And, but yeah. but is he? I mean, well, you know, I, I, are I any of us? <laughs> yeah, I thought that ending where you were alluding to something where we find out what it's all an act. I, I didn't think it was an act. I no. thought there was a secret because there's a voiceover section just before he turns around and goes, hey, this is easy to do, sort of thing, where he says, I've got to force her, I've got to force her hand into the only way mm. that'll save her. Yeah, uh, yeah. And so, and so he's, you know, he. 
this is a, a you know and obviously the action of someone who's thought this through and is you know has planned this quite well he's not stupid as he says that we may think of him as that way sort of thing but he's not so he knows that he has to act a certain way and, and do a certain thing to provoke mm. her into taking the action she needs to do yeah, to, yeah. Save, to save herself and so i don't believe for an instant that he actually is faking it i think he just is what he is and he's just he knows that she, she might believe that and go that, 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 that yeah, was my reading of the ending yeah, because there's the realization in there of his, you know, his eyes as he sort of dies. That and what does he say when he shoots her? It's like well played or something. Or you, you have to do that. Yeah, you didn't have a choice or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You did the right thing. Major spoiler alert, though. I think. <laughs> well, yeah. I think we just have to maybe put an, an announcement at the beginning, sort of thing, that there will be spoilers. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, the, the, I think this is the whole the whole crux of it, sort of thing, in that he. Because there's parts of the plot that you know, like, like I said, sort of thing with with uh, that don't make a, 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 a you know a lot of sense in regards to the knowledge that we have. Like, why does Bruce get, don't get shot? Why does this guy just shoot him in the middle of a public space outside of an airport? Like, yeah. it seems very you know we we get this sort of earlier sequence in the bar where they're very angry with each other. But this is the guy who served him at Thingy and who Rachel Ward seems to know quite well. Yeah, um, the beginning sequence. So th- there's these connections between these characters, sort of thing, and it felt like the, you know, the barman. I don't know. It just seemed. Oh, he's oh oh he's this other guy now. Is it? It's, it's like it seemed a, a strange sort of, you know, like and I, and I get sort of thing that we're supposed to see the film from you know uh, Collie's point of view, and so all the things we see are uh, you know all happen around him. Um, but then again, we know so little of him. Um, yes, it's, it's kind of hard to fill those blanks in. There's that. But again, you know, I don't know. Sorry, Eddie. But but again, that that's sort of the existentialism of Thompson, isn't it? Perhaps that people are people's people are judged by their actions, not necessarily by their intentions or their interiority. That you can the only thing that you can evidence is people's behaviour, isn't it? And uh, it's quite an interesting debate that I think is you know the, the extent to which when people behave in a certain way. And claim motivation, certain motivations. Um, uh, I don't get too much into what's got, sort of going on in the world right now, but, 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 but you you can never really know or understand those motivations. All you can evidence or judge people on is 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 what they do. There's that great line, isn't it, in the Wild Bunch? Some pick up as the Wild Bunch, where uh, uh, the guys hold up the bank at the start, and the the bank clerk or the bank manager says it's not it's not what you intended to do that i don't like it's what you did that i don't like and he says that to one of his staff doesn't he i think as the the wild bunch come in and hold the bank up and, and that's kind of this, this existential theme that bubbles underneath thompson's work and you see it in other i mean another example in the noir is um an early example is possibly Assault on Precinct 13, you know, that, that John Carpenter film, mm. uh, and that's very existential, I think. I mean, in terms of the setting, it's very indeterminate. It, it's, I've, I've read an, an article in the Chicago Tribune from when the film was first released that suggested that it was set in the 50s when the book was written. And there is that, it feels very period, but there's also some modern touches, and I can't, it's hard to determine when it's set, I think. Mm. Uh, whether it's supposed to be set in the present day or in uh, the past, I mean, in the 50s. Is that, I mean, yeah, is that a sort of, um, as, you know, a consequence of the book being written in the 50s and the film being made in the 90s? Obviously, there's... Well, I think, um, you know, again, there's, there's, there's like a floating sort of insignificance to the setting and stuff, and probably with, with the time not being really determined as well sort of fits with that 
you know, just the, the empty streets, you know, the, the straight sort of uh, crossroad small town in America, you know, there's thousands and thousands of them everywhere in America. And, you know, the this story that's sort of playing out um, until it hits the news or whatever, it, it, there's no significance. If, if this was happening in yeah, in a city or something, then, then mm. you know, we'd know that, everything, you know, they're doing this crime in amongst sort of society and it and it would have this these sort of ripple effects and 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 consequence but but really it's just these sort of insignificant characters in an insignificant place that are just bumbling about and you know we'll see what happens if if they do anything at all yeah the other thing i noticed as well sort of thing was um just um when they first go to her house um was how much dust was on the road there's yes, yeah. touch sort of thing, but just before they turn in, sort of thing, it's like this road has barely been used. It's yeah. like you know, no one comes out here, and it's the same when the doctor comes to see him, sort of thing, and then drives off. He drives off for you know quite a while, sort of thing, off into the distance, if I remember rightly. If I remember seeing that, yeah, shot. Um, yeah. So this is that this is not a you know, well, well traveled area, sort of thing. Yeah, um, and, and so, yeah absolutely. And there's you know, Rachel Ward just existing in this house. You know, she makes sort of allusion to, oh, we used to come to this dance once a week. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, nothing, you know, I don't know, nothing seems to. Yeah. I mean, it's a bit like psycho, isn't it? That the the motel has to be in a place where these these things that are happening could almost go unnoticed. You know, the, the yeah. fact that this guy's been killing these people. Spoilers yeah. on psycho. Yeah. <laughs> Ironically, I don't know if this is a thing with Neo Noir sort of thing. It's just the, the lack of police. Um, aside yeah. from the end, aside from the ending, when all the police turn up. Well, <laughs> such a good life, isn't it? That <laughs> yeah. It's just a, so it's funny sort of thing that, that, that all these you know he goes around punching people doing these things, but nobody wants to involve the police. Like even even the when they, they kidnap the boy sort of thing, and they say we're going to get the money, they, they don't want to bring the police in. There's this reticence to sort of engage with any kind of law enforcement or or anything, yeah, or authority or anything. And I think that's, you know, that's maybe sort of typical of that that, that area. I don't know, but it's, you know, it's it's an interesting setting. I think it's just it's just an open space in it for these characters to sort of drift through. Yeah, I mean, you said that. Yeah, I mean, as you said, Aidy, there's sort of echoes of the opening of Paris, Texas, and when. Um, oh, hugely, yeah. Yeah, and, 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 and the desert set is established very immediately. It was, it was photographed in Mecca, California, a place called Mecca in California. And it's a place with a very distinctive look because in the 30s, some local businessmen imported Middle Eastern palm trees to the area. And, and you see those in, in, in a number of shots. And it's quite close to uh, Palm Springs and Rancho Mirage, which are quite touristy places. But you get the sense that Mecca is off the beaten track, Mecca is off the beaten track in this. And it's an area that was, it was known for its dates. Um, it produced dates, and a lot of the date pickers were sort of very working class people. A lot of them were Mexicans and so on. Um, one of the film's key locations, in fact, was one of these date farms that was made to look deliberately run down. And uh, David Brisbane, who was the production designer, described it as a, and I like this phrase, and this is a quote from him, from him a desert rat world. And I think that, that, that that's a lovely phrase, I think. And I think what you see with that is an, an intention there to, to show, uh, to set the story in a space that the protagonist's lives are, are in faded surroundings, not quite squalor, but something close to it. These are surroundings that speak of faded glory, that sort of it ties in with Collie's status 
as a former prize fighter. Um, and uh, as you mentioned, the climax as well, that, that when the police appear at the end, that, that cop at the end immediately recognises Collie, <laughs> doesn't he? He says, oh, I'm Kevin, the kid Collie. Uh, oh, I've been, you're the boxer. You know, that's, what kind I mean, of... that's what I mean by how people seem to know him. And yeah, there yeah. seems to be like, oh, because I, I, my original thought was, we have two thoughts sort of thing about my, my, my partner and her thought was that he was actually the dead husband. Um, uh-huh. He was actually the dead. He was actually her husband who could no longer remember through uh, taking, you know, problems with the psychiatric hospital and, and obviously taking pummeling during boxing. The other thing I thought was that he, her husband, was the boxer he'd killed. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, yeah, yeah. And I There's think so much ambiguity, isn't there, that that you can sort of construct these narratives. I think about. Uh, yeah. Well, there's a point in the in the fight as well where obviously the the you know two white boxers and they're, they're obviously sort of lathered in sweat and their hairs are where it's at, at some point I was thinking, hang on, is is he beating himself up? Is that you know was it a double? That's Sorry, that's interesting, Peter. Sorry, yeah. I was, I was, it was yeah. like almost like violence against itself, isn't it? Because of course these are flashbacks, so they're not necessarily the the, the truth of what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, I was saying about the, the 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 location was about the date farm was. There's a clear sense of contrast with that with the privilege of the family that that Uncle mm-hmm. Bud. Um, the family that of the child that Uncle Bud plots to abduct. So this sort of ju- juxtaposition of the haves and the have-nots, isn't there? This sort of faded. Most people seem to be living in faded poverty or faded glamour, or you know, uh, a, a, a future that has no promise, but a past that probably had plenty of promise. As opposed to this this family that that that, that seems to exist in sort of quite a, a, well from the news cuttings and from the school that we see. Um, a, a, a position of wealth, which probably is the motivator for Uncle Bud's sort of, you know, this last whatever he plans to do, this last sort of stab at the world that he probably doesn't need the money, but he just wants to sort of punch the world or hit the world back. Like I think uh, again, it's like that anonymousness of of the town and and the people in it that they don't really make any impact on, on the world. Um, you know, f- from the point of view of the the haves, uh, like you know, when Collie goes to pick up the child, no one recognizes the fact that it's it's a different bloke. You know, they're yes, all calling the hats, him. The, and yeah, yeah. Don't pay attention to poor people. This is the mm. thing: isn't it? they don't pay attention to working class people. So, oh, the chauffeurs come. <laughs> you know, and it's a completely different fellow, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Mm. I mean, in terms of the boxing matches, you know, you've got those those. Um, mm. Flashbacks. Those seem very influenced by, uh, and I'm sure you've seen Raging Bull, but very influenced by mm. those kind of, especially the Sugar Ray Robinson fight, because um, you've got those close-ups of, of Patrick's face, the central composition, the slow mo, the camera flashes sound like mm. dragons roars, don't they? On the on the audio track, distortion, very expressionistic, very similar to those uh, boxing matches in uh, Raging Bull. Uh, I remember seeing that on the big screen about sort of 20 years ago. And that's, that's an incredible experience. And um, accompanied by Colin's sort of declarations, I wonder where I'll be tomorrow. Always comes back the same with the more of the crowd, that one wildly shrieking voice. He's punching his brains out. It's murder. It's murder. And you don't need to see that. Just the words are enough. He's punching his brains out. What a disturbing image that is. Yeah, I mean, there was a few things um, that I wanted to say about the sound, you know, a little bit later or whatever. But I think with the sound and the way it's shot, that that, that opening um, boxing match, it, 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 
it really reminded me of uh, of Highlander with you know with the the oh, yeah, wrestling yeah. the wrestling match and you know the, the camera flashes and, and and in some of the camera flashes as well you can see that you know there's nothing that, you know you can't see the crowd or anything and I suppose that's a little bit like Closet Land as well you know that it seems a construct that it's it's not a real setting you know it's, it is a, a disturbed sort of slightly unreliable sort of uh, flashback you know that it is in the mind yeah it, it, yeah it's a mental sort of space isn't it rather mm. than a physical story space i mean it reminds us how many classic films are focus on boxing or boxes you've got films like the setup one of my favorites robert rosson's body and soul which was written by abraham polonsky that's got that great line in it um, where the boxer played by John Garfield told by his mother, "Fight for something, not for money," and and, and that's something that uh, that that sort of remi- that I'm I'm constantly reminded of that line. I think that's such an incredible <laughs> line. I think I think I've taken that as a motto. Well, funnily enough, we watched yeah we watched Creed two um, last night, um, and so sort of five minutes in, and I'm like, oh, I have seen this, but uh, uh, yeah, Rocky, uh, that's his mantra to to Creed as well. Um, you, what are you fighting for? You got to fight for something. Exactly. Yeah, it's not a great film. Yeah, I mean, echo echoes for me because I don't sort of get too much off track. But uh, I I like these films more about boxing and they are about boxing because my my grandfather was a boxer in the army in the Second World War and he sort of carried that through afterwards. (coughs) His father, my great grandfather, was a boxer as well. He was in the Black Watch in 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 the First World War. He was at the Somme. And um, a few other unpleasant battles, you know, where the the, the Scots were sent over over the wall with the uh, kilts and sabers, you know, facing machine guns. Um, but he came back in the twenties in the depression, thanks to Winston Churchill, you know, this, this guy that everybody celebrates that that sort of drove the, the working classes into poverty, thanks to the um, that business with the gold standard in twenty five. Um, and he fed his family, he put food on the table by, by bare knuckle boxing, um, you know, illegally under, underground in the twenties and the thirties. That was the thing that he did. He worked on the docks. It was a Steve dock, but. Uh, he helped. He, he he helped to sustain his family by bare knuckle boxing, um, and uh, you know, so, so sort of stories about boxing sort of appeal to me in that sense because uh, this this it, it's a recognisable these stories that I grew up with from a great grandfather and from a grandfather about sort of boxing, and and and, and sort of boxing being an art as well. Um, and that's why that line speaks to me in, in uh, Body and Soul, fight for something, not for money, you know, about boxing being an art, not necessarily just, you know, a, a means of uh, sort of a, a, as, as it is today. Um, not not for everybody, but, you know, the, the perception of boxing is that it's kind of a, a, a sort of a money-making sport, isn't it? Uh, a bit like football and so on and so forth. And anyway, that's a, that's a bigger debate. But but what I like about Patrick's performance, I think, is, is that... You know, at that point, he's, he's, quite, he's, he's a handsome lad, I think it's fair to say. Um, uh, he's got this sort of pretty boy persona, but he, he expresses that punchiness. I think he's got that slack jaw, that shambling gait, and that under-the-brow stare. And because of that, people underestimate him. They see him as as, as uh, slightly stupid. And the line that I was struggling to remember earlier was, was he says to Faye, I want to correct the erroneous impression you seem to have about me. Yeah. See, I'm so stupid. I may appear to be, 
but I'm not. Mm. But is he? I mean, well, not stupid, but but, but mad or, or, or mentally unstable, I should say. Yeah, because at the end, when he's saying this thing of it being an act and thing, then it it, it all brings all that together, doesn't it? The the perception versus the reality and and what what it is. Exactly. Yeah, but I think I think we see the majority of the film through Collie's eyes, his suspicious eyes. Every conversation seems like a trap. There's a, they explode into violence at the start in Bates Bar. He lashes out at the the bartender, leans over and, and, and strikes him. And he's certainly needled needled in Bates Bar at the start, but his reaction is is kind of over the top, isn't it? That that moment of violence kind of speaks so much of the character. Um, that when he's needled verbally, he leans, he leans over the bar and, and sort of punches the, mm. the bar. And again, we don't see this. We hear that there's, there's kind of a... a, a it, I, I can't remember. I'd, I'd have to check. But it sounds like the sound of the flash, the flash guns on the cameras, doesn't it? I think when he leans over and strikes the, the bartender, um, sucker punches him because he's not expecting it. And, and then later, you used that phrase earlier, Peter, about verbal sparring. And then mm. I've got that in my notes. Later in the film, there's, there's this verbal sparring between Collie, Bud and Faye. And those words are just as violent as the physical violence. Um, this is one of the things that I used to talk a lot about student, to students about. You know, we used to do a module on censorship. Was that violence isn't just physical. Verbal violence, you know, uh, can be more harmful, more toxic, more unpleasant in many ways. Um, the words have the impact of body blows is what I've put in my notes, and I like that. Uh, you know, when, when um, Collie punches Doc in the heart, some of those words have the same impact, don't they? Verbal fisticuffs. Um, and, and, and I think, you know, there's, there's no relationship in the film that doesn't have ambiguity. Um, and, and Collie says near the start, after he meets Faye in, in Bert's bar, he says, she was kind to me one minute, then needling me the next. Seemed to depend on how she felt, and how she felt depended on how much wine she had mm. in there. Mm. And, and, and again, it sort of ties in with this sort of theme of alcoholism in, in Thompson's work, and uh, you know, how uh, how people's character cha- characters change when they drink, or, or, or maybe they become more mercurial and that's actually getting to the core of who they are if you know what I mean, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah So um, you, you know, we've mentioned earlier Collie's got this get out clause for every awkward situation um, this is this story about Jack Billingsley but it, it never seems to work um, and that crops up again and again doesn't it? it starts in the bar at the beginning and then at the airport during the, the film's climax you know tries to get out of any situation I'm waiting for my yeah. friend Jack Billingsley so there's a sense of duplicity but Collie's not good at that but Bud and Faye and some of the other current characters are aren't they they, they, they are good at sort of manipulating they are uh, convincing you would say in sort of manipulating and, 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 and lying um well, I suppose and, that's and, the thing about the end, then, isn't it? That he he tries to put across the idea that he's been manipulating everyone from the start, hasn't he? Whether that's true exactly. or not. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Through the voiceover at the end. Yeah. 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 Um, and he tries to present himself as a convincing um, fabricator of truth. Yeah. Let's say. Um, but he's, I mean, he's unreliable from the start to the audience, isn't he? And I think this goes about what you were saying, Adi, about how that backstory, if you like, is hinted at 
but it's never sort of confirmed for us. And we don't know how much of it is true, how much of it is, is untrue, how much of it is a deliberate fabrication, how much of it is delusion. There's this sense of cross and double cross. You know, you've got Collie at the heart of the story who narrates and who, through much, who, uh, who the, much of the film is focalised through. He's deeply unreliable. As he says, all you've got to do is pick a guy who's a little bit off and, and throw him a curve. And, and that line I keep quoting, but I love it. But, but none of them trust the others. Mm. I mean, Collie says to put at one point, Faye doesn't trust me and I don't trust her. We both don't trust you. And 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 and, and it's a very much a a dog eat dog world, isn't it? I think in in, in this sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but what about that relationship that Collie has with Faye? Um, I mean, I don't know how I, how other of you feel about that. Um, I don't know. I think it just felt like a quite a. I think it followed a typical arc of one of these films. That's what I felt. I felt you could see where it was going. You could see where it, what was going to happen. Um, I, I, I think that's one of my big issues with the film is that there's no surprises. Um, yeah, it, yeah. It, it, it just follows it. I, at the end, I turned to my partner and I said, I went, mm, it's another one of them. Um, and I think that was my biggest thing with it. It just, it didn't, the thing what it didn't do was throw a curve. <laughs> yeah, know, yeah. Like yeah, yeah line, this, sort of thing. It's, it's very, yeah, yeah. it's very, it's very just down the line. You know these characters. You kind of know, like you, like we said, like I said at the very beginning. You know, bad things happen. We know that's going to happen. It's a neo noir. This is, you know, these characters will never. You know, they're, they're aiming to kidnap a kid. It's not going to end well. Bad things will happen. It yeah. does, and that's it. And I think that the relationship between those two, yeah, they'll be a bit spiky with each other, sort of thing. They will end up in bed at some point. They do. Um, and, and yeah, and, and you know, and and I think by the end of it, you know, he he does the should we say he's self sacrifice, whatever sort of thing, the noble thing, sort of thing, and, and gets her, you know, she gets she gets away with it all, sort of thing. When whatever, or does she? We don't know. Again, we never find out what happens after you know after he dies. Um, I just, or to the or to the boy as well. I mean, that's the yeah. I, 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 think, I think sorry, Andy. I was just going to say sort of thing. I didn't, I, I, I didn't find their relationship in any way sort of, you know, it it was what it was because it was part. It, it fitted the genre. It was part yeah, of. It was. Yeah. It didn't do anything kind of interesting, you know. I think the, I there's a lack of. I don't. I hate to use that phrase, but there's a lack of chemistry between Patrick and Ward. I think that there's sort of the, you know, there's a certain point where Faye she knows um, uh, Collie's uh, unhinged. Is mentally unstable, but after they've kidnapped the boy, and he, he sort of approaches her in the bathrooms and he kisses her passionately, and then there's that that stereotypical sort of sex scene you see in the um, you know, pictures where you've got the fades to black and dissolve, very arty sort of mm-hmm. you know the hand. It, it reminds me very much of um, the sex scene in American Gigolo, the Paul Schrader film. But also, there's a similar scene in Robert Rosson's pickpocket, uh, Robert, uh, Robert Bresson, sorry, pickpocket, uh, where there's sort of it's just fragments of pe- people touching other people's bodies. Yeah, Fates it's like the one in uh, 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 Don't Don't Look Don't Look Now. Don't Look, don't now. look now, yeah, yeah. Although that's a bit more graphic, I think. But it's, uh, I mean, it is, but it's that similar sort of, you know, fragments. Elliptical, yeah, yeah. 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 And 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 um, I think that's the. Only, I think you said somebody said was it Pete? You said they end up in bed together a lot, but I think that's the only sign they, they mm. do. And yeah. uh, 
And it's um, it, it felt it like feels a lot. A bit, <laughs> it, it feels a lot. It does. You, you're right, Andy. That's a good point. But it, it feels very much a sap to those conventions of neo noir established in Body Heat. You know, with Kathleen Turner and um, William Hurt. William Hurt. Body Heat. Um, yeah, yeah. But uh, you know, you've you've got to have these quite. I don't want to get too graphic about it, but semi-explicit sex scenes. Basic Instinct, of course, a bit later. Paul Verhoeven's Basic Instinct. Says the guy that wrote his PhD on, on <laughs> American films. Uh, Bound, you know, the the, the, the Wachowski's Bound. Um, I love that film uh, with Gina Gershon and, and uh, Jennifer Tilly. Jennifer Tilly or Meg I was getting those two mixed up. The Postman Always Rings Twice with um, Nicholson and... Um, help me out here, uh, the actress's name. Uh, it's, um, uh, it's Jessica, Jessica Lang. Jessica, Jessica Lang, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which kind of was about, you know, did they do it for real? And, and Postman was doing strikes, wasn't there? Uh, yeah. The Getaway with Baldwin mm. and Basinger. It, you know, it feels very much like a sex scene that's sort of crowbarred into there because Neo Noir has to have, has to have it. Yeah. I, I think have, it, I think I it was quite interesting there because it's, it's, it's clearly not a normal relationship. And it's like, because they, they do it well, sort of, a lot after, you know, one time pretty, after the other. Like they've, they've, they've got to thrash it out. They've got to, you know, have that physical relationship all at yeah. once, you know? Yeah. But it, it's slightly creepy because Collie's not, not all there. He's very childlike. And Faye is a widow. And he's sort of, there's this symbolic killing of the father with um, Doc Goldman. I don't know, I find, I find it quite sort of, I'm, maybe I'm, I'm looking at this in, in, in the wrong way, but I find it a bit odd, a bit exploitative. Um, and I find it odd that Faye reacts to his kisses. <coughs> sort of, she's in the bathroom and, and she sort of, you know, she reacts in a, in a, uh, a uh, what's the word? A reciprocal way. Yeah. Um, but from my point of view, I mean, I, I did enjoy, I enjoyed the film. Um, I think that it's a good, it's a good film, but it's it, I think my my initial reaction, I think, stands it, it it felt to me like another one of them. I don't think there was, you know, I think it looks nice and I like the setting and everything, but I, I don't think the leads carry it particularly well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah. I think that I think that sort of um, bore through what I thought about it. With because uh, I I thought uh, a film that gets under your skin in the first thirty minutes, but but after that tense that the promise of tension and the promise of something else, it it, it seemed a bit flat after that. And I think maybe like what you were saying, Ad, that it descends into another one of those maybe that it because um, like I, I mean I haven't I haven't sort of talked about the sound element but but I think the sounds really effective at, at, for that first you know for, for the first bit of it um, but by the end the, even that increasing use of the pulse soundtrack that that works so the heartbeat. Uh, yeah the heartbeat at the, at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. I think by the end it still felt lifeless and stiff by the end of it, that, that we were just uh, weren't necessarily engaged, whether it was through the the, the chemistry between the, the leads or the familiarity of knowing how it's going to play out. I think the, yeah. the differentness of the first half hour didn't play through to the end. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I, I just, I, I was thinking as, as I head towards the end, I think I'd say, just say that, you know, Bud, Bud's, um, sort of sells the abduction as a victimless crime. He says you wouldn't have to hurt anyone. It's just a case of putting pressure on people who have more money. 
than they know what to do with, which kind of consolidates what was said earlier about uh, kind of Bud's ambiguous motivation. It seems just like a, a lashing out at the world. He's shocked when Collie pulls off the kid ha- kidnapping. He says, I've got to hand it to you. I don't know another guy in the country who tried it the way you did and get away with it. And that's when um, Collie delivers that line that I keep quoting. All you've got to do is pick yourself, guys, a little bit off and throw him a curve. And Bud says in response to it, I know exactly what you mean. You hold the short end of that stick for so long. And you're going to want to start swinging it. And I think that that sort of gets at the heart of the motivations uh, of many of these these characters. And I think what, what appeals to me, I think, in many ways, is that, that weird sort of nebulous shifting power dynamic between Bud and Collie phase in the centre. And much of the, the story's got, it's very locked down, um, you know, very... Uh, uh, appropriate to the times that we live in how, you know think about how much of that middle portion of the film takes place in the claustrophobic confines of the house and that's emphasized through the photography um i mean i watched this again on the projector and, and, and when you when i did i noticed how much there was juxtaposition in in terms of color um baby blue the walls are all very baby blue but there's very sort of strong red ornaments in the background of scenes so this strange lockdown nature of the story but um there's so much visual tension um that 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 uh expresses itself in these verbal fisticuffs which is the phrase that, that you introduced there peter um there's no happy endings, as, as we've said. It, it, I think the, the sort of the point of it is that fatalistic sort of dynamic of film noir. The New York Magazine Review said it was about three losers stewing in their own juice, which kind of um, story of my life that is, um, and it, <laughs> it captures the fatalism of Thompson's work quite quite well in that sense. Um, but what I like about it is the feverishness and I think the, the ambiguity of it. Um, there's some elements that, that don't quite work for me, like I said. I'm not entirely sure. And I don't think it's a bad performance, but I'm not entirely sure that Rachel Ward, the casting of Rachel Ward works, I think, in the context of the film. Um, I don't think she does a, delivers a bad performance. I just, you know, think the casting decision uh, was, was a little bit sort of off there. Um, but, um, but uh, um, I mean, that's kind of my uh, summing up, if you like. Other than what I'll, I'll, I'll sort of leave you with that final voiceover um, or quote from it, where Collie says, it's funny how sometimes things aren't true. Things, Sorry, funny how sometimes things that aren't true are more true than the truth, which I think is, after a lot of what we've said, is is, is kind of a, a, a good summation of the, the film's themes in many ways. You know, what we've talked about existentialism and, and sort of how characters de- determined through action rather than sort of motive or um, intention. Uh, you know, funny how sometimes things that aren't true are more true than the truth. You got the wrong idea about me, Carly. We just met. I don't have any ideas yet. Let me see what I can stir up for you. I don't want him talking you into this mess. Family's ready to pay up. They just want the boy back. Faye doesn't trust me, and I don't trust her. We both don't trust you. After dark, my sweet. Starts Friday, August 24th, the Plaza Theatre, Chelsea Cinema, and the